Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Brian, thanks for taking some time to join me on the, on the show, mate. Oh, and pleasure to be here. We just re- stepped off a recording on our Australian finance podcast. So I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to hear Brian's take on some other concepts. Um, I highly encourage you to go and listen to that episode. But for this one, Brian, we're going to go um, a bit deeper. And um, when my co-host on the finance podcast, Kate, said, oh, we're interviewing Brian um, and we're going to interview him about his new book, um, I just I just had to ask you a few questions in addition to what we spoke about over there um, because I recently watched your your um, microcap club presentation as good reasons to ignore valuation. And I thought headline, very provocative. I've got to watch this presentation. Um, and I was just like, it was just awesome. And I just hoped that we, we would one day be able to engage and, and we would be able to go over some of these things. So um, the first question is a, a real simple one is in the, in the past, you've mentioned that you're a natural saver, you had a high savings rate um, and you looked for value. How did this lead you to value investing? Yeah, I'm uh, frugality is kind of like very natural to me, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I've always been, I'm a natural, say, I think some people are just born savers. Like they're just born to um, not consume everything. And that is 100% me to the, uh, to the core. Um, so when I, just with that mindset and that way of thinking, uh, when I first became an investor, um, I was just immediately drawn to value investing, right? Like I, I don't want to buy anything that's overpriced. I don't want to buy anything that's expensive. I want to buy things that are cheap, right? That's how I shop uh, in the real world. Uh, that's how I think. Plus, when you study Warren Buffett, uh, Charlie Munger, uh, Seth Klarman, all the great value investors, uh, Benjamin Graham, the thing they say is what you want to do is buy things cheap. Like that's how you make money. You find a dollar that's trading for 70 cents, and that's what you um, in, invest in. So that mindset very much appealed to me uh, when I was a, an, uh, an early investor. So when I was looking for companies to buy, I was judging them solely based on price to earnings ratio, uh, dividend yield, right? The lower the price to earnings ratio, the better, the higher the dividend yield, um, the better. And that caused me to miss out on many, many, many uh, wonderful companies simply because they got caught in my valuation filter, which is the thing that I the first criteria that I put any potential investment through. It was valuation first, everything else second. Um, And what I've learned the hard way is that business quality should be the thing that you first uh, focus on and everything else uh, should be second. It's like, because it's, it's so simple, right? It's low price earnings ratio, therefore cheap. We just joked off air about an advertisement that I saw as good and cheap stocks. That's the way our brain is wired. And I think in the presentation you used, um, like what we would call a $2 store, or like a discount store, as an example of like, we're attracted to big signs that say on mm-hmm. sale and things in the bargain bin, right? That's kind of like how we're wired. That's how some people are are wired, and that's exact. That is one hundred percent how I I am wired. So yeah, it was it was very natural for me to go from uh, shopping for things uh, frugally, trying to pay as little as possible, to shopping for stocks frugally, trying to pay as little as possible. Mm. This um, 
there's this, I know I'm going to link to it in the show notes um, and people can get it from your Twitter as well. Your investment checklist. I know some of our analysts at RAS, they were, they saw it and they were like, okay, this is awesome. I love this checklist. And you and uh, Brian Stoffel go through a lot of these things on, on your YouTube page as well, or channel. Um, how is your, if you could sum it up as succinctly as you can, I know this isn't easy. How has your investing approach changed over time? So uh, away from those kind of um, ratios and that type of value investing, traditional value investing. Yeah. So again, I'm a, I'm a slow learner and I'm a natural value investor. So my, my investing philosophy really started to change uh, dramatically once I started to subscribe to The Motley Fool. And I really started to study uh, the investment um, uh, success of David Gardner uh, in mm. particular. David Gardner is one of my favorite investors um, ever. And his investing style, if you, if you study it, is essentially look for high quality, high growth businesses and almost ignore valuation. Mm. In fact, one of the things that still drives me crazy about David is like if a stock is up 50% over the last month or two months, that's attractive to him. <laughs> that's attractive. Like, look, this stock is $30 today. It was $20 a month ago. It's a great buy today. And that it just goes so against every um, natural thought that I have as an investor. Like, I'm not paying $30 for today for something that was $20 uh, a month ago. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, but so whereas I, and I think many people are repelled by stocks that are up huge, David is actually attracted to stocks that are up huge. And I saw him make recommendation after recommendation after recommendation of companies that were up big just within the last month, six months, year, many of them trading at all time highs at the time of his recommendation. I can't tell you how many times I saw him make a recommendation and my first thought, my, my pa pass. Pass. No, I'm not buying this stock. It's at an all-time high. It's at an all-time high valuation. But he kept doing it again and again and again and again. And I saw the results over time. So he was recommending Netflix at all-time highs, Amazon at all-time highs, Apple at all-time highs, Activision at all-time highs. And in each case, despite the fact that he was recommending these companies at all-time highs, record record numbers, they have just produced mega massive returns for investors uh, over time. And the reason that D David's style is really focused on very high quality business first, get me a high growth, high quality business with a huge opportunity ahead. That's what I care about. And I care way less about value today's valuation. I care about what the future potential um, is. And if you, if you study that style of investing slowly, and I mean really slowly, over time, my investing started to shift away from maybe there's something hmm. uh, to this. And when I look back at some of my most profitable stock picks of all time, uh, they were Amazon, which when I bought it was trading at an insane valuation. Hmm. And it's like a 20 bagger uh, for me or MasterCard. I bought on an all-time high. Visa, I bought an all-time high. Apple, I bought on an all-time, all-time highs. And yet they were still multi-baggers uh, for me. So learning that lesson that that it's okay to pay up uh, for, for quality is something that has taken me so long to do, uh, but it's now a vital part of how I invest today. Mm, I think one of the examples that you use too during the the presentation was uh, Salesforce because you were familiar with the software. You knew that it was like 
eating the business world, so to speak, um, and resisted buying it. Um, and I, I can relate to that too. There are so many good products in our in my life that I've looked at and go, oh, I use this every day, but hey, it's not a good investment because the stock's gone up. <laughs> like that's, that's the way you think, right? You're right. It's like, yeah. if the chart is at the top, that's not good. Um, yeah, but, right. Can't, yeah. can't buy this. The, I, I missed it, right? That's the, the I, I missed it. Right? That's it's, it. it's already up too big. I can't, it, it can't go any higher, right? Yeah. That, that kind of thinking can get you into just as much trouble as it can't go any lower. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. David, yes, it can. <laughs> <laughs> I think David Gardner has this thing where he's like, you know, he's going to lampoon um, buy low, sell high. And that's kind of how we're taught, right? Like buy the cheap stocks, sell them when they're expensive. Um, when it's kind of like the opposite, like buy the good stocks and just keep buying them. Um, mm-hmm. Seems to make so much more sense if we look back. And um, this actually ties into the next question, Byron, which is, um, like one good investment can just dramatically change your investment returns. And even if you're, if you're professional, your career, um, I don't know if you can relate to that. Oh, very much can. When I look at my, the returns in my uh, portfolio, my top, my top handful of mega, mega, mega winners have driven all uh, or the vast lion's share of my portfolio's gains and all of my losers, all of my losers combined, add them all up, uh, is the, the total losses there is dwarfed by the gains that I've had in Tesla. Like one company, Tesla, has been such an unbelievable outperformer on the upside that it just pays for every single loss that I've uh, I've ever had. Now, when people hear that, it's natural for them to think, well, then investing is just luck, right? Mm-hmm. Investing, if, if you only have, if you take away your best performer, your portfolio doesn't look as good. And the truth is that if you look at essentially all of the best stock pickers of all time, many of them can tell very similar stories. My, my favorite story on that is the story of uh, Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett's uh, mentor, the, the literal inventor of value mm-hmm. investing. Um, he, in, in a very serious way, owes all of his outperformance over time to one company. Do you know what company that is? Geico. Geico. Exactly. He put he when he bought Geico, I think the year was 1948, he broke every rule that he had in his investing uh, playbook. He didn't pay. He didn't get it at a huge discount. He put 25% of his uh, firm's capital into it. It was a way outsized uh, position for him, and it didn't meet any of his investing uh, criteria. However, when he put that much capital into um, his firm's capital into Geico, he bought half of Geico. And within a period of like 20 years, he had like a 500 bagger <laughs> on his uh, hand. And that one investment from Geico outweighed all of the investment gains on every other stock that he purchased combined by many, many multiples. Um, and it, that just shows you that, and that's the greatest value investor of all time, the inventor of value investing. He made his fortune. He made a name for himself on a growth stock, mm. a, a growth stock that he broke his own rules on, uh, on playing. And that's just how investing works. If you actually crack open uh, the index, right, any of the most successful indexes uh, of own time, it's always a minority of companies, five, seven, 10% of companies that drive literally 100% of the returns. That's the reason that index funds work so well, um, is that you are guaranteed to get those mega winners into your uh, portfolio, and they just dwarf the the losses of all of the losers uh, combined. So if you're looking at your own portfolio, and you're like, well, I only have like one, two, or three of these mega winners, and I have just like a sea uh, of losers, that's how investing 
investing works. Uh, you just don't know that because that's hidden from our view if you're just putting your money in funds. Mm. Um, Brian, one of the things that um, we talk about a lot on the show, um, you know, I studied finance. I think you studied business. Um, we, we talk on the show about discounted cash flow analysis. Our guests on the show talk about, you know, these types of things. How, how do you use tools like that? Or how do you use, I guess, any um, valuation criteria? And maybe the, we can roll this into another point, which is like the life cycle of companies and, and how that all interplays into your strategy. Yeah, the what is a what is a business worth today? What is the technical academic uh, mm. reason? What's what's a business worth today? The answer is the discounted cash rate of all the company's future cash flows into perpetuity. Right, that is a logical academic answer. Uh, the only problem with discounted cash flows is it's just advanced guessing. <laughs> That's it, right? You're like you're putting in assumptions about growth rate. You're putting in assumptions about your this kind of return. You're 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 convincing yourself with very sophisticated, fancy math that uh, this that ABC company is worth exactly uh, this price uh, today. But the, there's a thing about predicting the future, and that the predicting the future is really, really, really hard. I mean, uh, my favorite example of this is go back until like the year uh, 2000, right? Take the most bullish forecast that you could have found for amazon.com right the the absolute most bullish forecast possible for amazon.com the analyst that was putting out the information all the other analysts were laughing at him <laughs> at how bullish uh his was uh by 2020 i think this was the year 2020 the highest revenue estimate 20 years out was like 26 billion dollars or or something some absurd uh number and how much how much revenue did amazon do it was like 380 billion dollars. It was literally 10 or 15 <laughs> times bigger than the most bullish forecast. So if you were using discounted cash flow models on Amazon at any time during the 2000s, you're, you would have said, nope, pass. Amazon is is too is too uh, is too expensive. Um I think that discounted cash flow models have value. I think the most value that they have is when you can take the price and you can do a reverse discounted cash flow. So mm. it says, based on today's price, what kind of growth is assumed to be in in the in the price? And does do, do I think the company can outperform that or or underperform that? That to me uh, has value. But for for me, I don't use discounted cash flow models uh, when it comes to valuation. I like to think of uh, I like to think about an X Y uh, axis, and essentially, when I think a company has, I'm use air quotes, unlimited potential, right? Just like mm -hmm. massive amount of top line growth potential uh, ahead of it. I I don't even look. I, I ignore valuation altogether. If I think a if I if a company uh, is trading at one billion dollars today, the company's market cap is one billion, and I say to myself, if this thesis works out. Which is a big if, but if it does, if the company captures its opportunity, I could see this being a ten billion dollar company or a twenty billion dollars company in time. I'm just going to buy it. I'm just going to buy it. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worry about the valuation at a time because the story is it, it, the company fulfilling its its market um, uh, opportunity. And if the greatest companies of all time smash even the most bullish, most optimistic uh, projections that analysts can pull out them. They're very rare, but that's how the best companies uh, work. Conversely, if I was going to be investing in a company that was gigantic, had captured a large part of its market uh, opportunity, I would be far more focused on valuation. So if I was going to be an investor in Microsoft today, Apple uh, today, um, Google uh, today, those are big 
predictable uh, companies, or at least more predictable companies than they were 20 years ago. Their hyper growth days are done. Um, and because of that, uh, I, I'm not going to pay any price for those businesses today. So the bigger the company and the more, the more um, constrained its potential, the more I focus on valuation. And the smaller the company and the more unlimited its potential, the less I focus on valuation. Yeah, I think you showed a chart in your presentation. And I think it was from, I think you used data from Boston Consulting Group, where it effectively showed the different drivers of stock returns over time. And once you go out past five years, the predominant um, explanatory variable or variables was growth. Um, whereas in the shorter term, it was valuation. There was more valuation in that mix. If you think about that, you know, 100% of the return is explained by what? Um, in the shorter term, it was valuation. Longer term, it was growth, like sales growth, those types of things, right? Yeah, that's 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 very true, and, and it makes complete sense, uh, right? If you look at uh, any any stock in in a normal in a, in a normal year, um, the typical the difference between the high price and the low price in, in any given year is something like forty percent, I think, for like the S and P five hundred. So the average company in an average non recession, non crazy year has a valuation has a, um, a price change of forty percent peak uh, peak to trough. So if you're going to be if you're going to be making money in that company in the short term, it's all going to be based on it, the vast majority is valuation based, right? It's going to be, did I buy at a low valuation? Did the valuation increase? Or did I buy at too high of a valuation? And did the valuation de decrease? It makes sense that over a year, that's what drives the returns. But however, when you stretch it out to longer periods of time, to your point, the, the study mentioned 10-year uh, uh, periods, the fundamental thing that drives mm. stock market returns over 10-year periods, 75% of it is accounted for uh, sales and profit growth, uh, period. In fact, the valuation component on a 10-year chart is something like Five or ten percent of the of the difference uh, in in the growth, and that makes complete sense, right? If you buy, if you bought, um, if you bought, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you bought Apple ten years ago, uh, what was its revenue? I don't know, uh, but it's it's nowhere close to what its revenue was uh, last year. It was it, the revenue last year dwarfed its um, its revenue from ten years ago? So even if you paid a high price to sales, price to earnings ratio 10 years ago, the company's top line has grown so tremendously that the entire value of the business had to go up uh, because the business was doing uh, so much better. So yeah, over long periods of time, it's really growth that determines uh, your, your return, not valuation. And that's why since I'm focused on five, 10-year periods, I place much more emphasis on growth and potential than I do necessarily valuation. Mm. Yeah, I think it's... Um... When I saw that study, I thought that's like almost really refreshing because it reinforces that qualitative investment approach, right? Finding the businesses that are resilient, that are high quality. Um, again, I'll refer to your checklist um, where you are, basically you go out and you try and identify these businesses in the wild um, step by step. It's, it's, it's a really good checklist for anyone that's listening. Um, one of the things that um, I know you like to talk about too is like the life cycles of businesses and basically the tools you can use to identify businesses at certain uh, parts of their, their life cycle. I think that's a really important approach for this type of investing because we want to know which stage it's in. So we, if we want to pay more for that company, it would make sense. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, this is something that, again, confused me, um, especially for people that study the PE ratio like I did. When I first heard of the PE ratio, the price to earnings ratio, it made complete 
sense to me, <laughs> right? You, it makes complete sense to me. If the market multiple is 15 and a company is trading at a PE of 20, it's automatically expensive. Or if it's 25, it's automatically um, expensive. To say nothing of it's 50 or 100 or 1,000, right? Those numbers are so astronomical, you can't even consider them uh, because it would take you 50, 100, 1,000 years to get your, your money back, right? Based on the earnings that they have uh, today. Mm. But what that undersells is that there are multiple phases that every great growth, every growth business uh, goes through. When a company is, is starting on, on day one, what are its sales? Zero, right? They're, they're zero. So the price to earnings ratio, the price to sales ratio, the price to book ratio, all, all those metrics are infinity, uh, right? But would you want to be an investor in Apple on day one? Would you want to be an investor in Amazon on day one, Google? Uh, of course, of course you uh, you would. So those valuation metrics in the early days are useless in, in, in so many uh, cases. When a company is going through its hyper growth phase, like many companies that come public are, their revenue is tend to be, be rapidly rising. Uh, however, so many of those companies are reinvesting in themselves to drive that future growth that their current expenses is higher than they would be if they weren't investing uh, in, in themselves. Uh, for that reason, if your expenses are artificially inflated because you're in growth mode, your earnings are going to be artificially de- uh, flated, understated. The earnings power of the business is going to be understated. Uh, for that reason, the price to earnings ratio is going to look inflated because earnings are below what the true earnings power of, uh, of a company is. So when a company is growing uh, very rapidly, the price to earnings ratio is often a useless metrics to look at because it looks like a, a hundred or a thousand mm. or whatever uh, it is. Um, so when when it comes to when that's when that's the scenario, I think that the thing that investors should do is look further up the income statement to get a better idea of of value. Now. I love the PE ratio when it works. Like that's my favorite metric for valuing uh, companies. The problem is uh, it doesn't work on a lot of companies uh, because they're not optimized for profits. They're optimized for growth. Uh, so if you want to figure out how to value a, a growth company, uh, you just move further up the income statement. So price to EBIT is better than price to earnings in some cases, or price to gross profit is better than price to earnings, or price to sales is is a better guide when a company is growing rapidly uh, than price uh, than price to earnings. But the more mature a business gets as it continues to grow and mature and its growth rate normalizes, that's when the company switches from focusing on growth to focusing on profitability. And when a company is fully optimized for profitability, bingo, that's when the price to earnings ratio starts, uh, starts to work. Um, finally, if a company is in the decline phase, if it's being disrupted or if its business is rapidly uh, heading towards uh, zero, this is a really tricky time uh, mm. for investors because if you look trailing, it often looks like these companies are trading at five times earnings and they have dividend yields of like 8% or 10%. And you're like, oh my God, this business is so cheap. Mm. Uh, however, if those earnings are rapidly trending towards zero, it doesn't matter how low of a price to earnings ratio you pay on them, you're going to lose a whole bunch of money. Uh, so that I think that the the graphic, if you can share it with your, your audience, is just a good mm. mental model for investors to have in their mind for when the price to earnings ratio is useful or useless. Mm. And I definitely will because it's yeah, it's super valuable. And I'll share the, the link to the presentation as well. I thought I might just um, sneak you one more question here, mate, which is uh, what factors 
would matter more to you than valuation? So uh, one, one um, exercise that I think everyone should go through this that picks individual uh, stocks uh, is very similar to what I did when I was creating my uh, investing checklist, which you point out is it's freely downloadable, downloadable on my uh, website. It's a good starting point for people. Uh, first thing investors should do is write down for themselves all of the attributes in a business that they find attractive. Uh, for me, that's things like strong balance sheet, high gross margin, high returns on capital, positive and growing free cash flow, positive and growing earnings, founder-led management team, low customer acquisition costs, uh, high inside ownership, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. I have like 30 things that I wrote down that are positive. The same time, make another list. What are the things you don't want to see in, in an investor, right? What's the negative uh, for you? I don't like losses. I don't like negative free cash flow. I don't like debt. I don't like accounting problems. I don't like customer concentration. I don't like it when a company is dependent on a commodity price or an interest rate for it to do well. Like I don't like airlines because they need low fuel prices uh, to do well. So for me, the entire sector is forget it. Uh, how can I predict uh, uh, fuel prices? I can't. Um, so therefore, how can I predict what the stock will do? I, I can't. I don't like high dilution. I don't like it when the company's, um, when currency impacts a company's financials, uh, et cetera. So I have my two lists, good things, bad things. Then I allocated a hundred points to, to the list of, of good things. And this is a really, really important exercise because it's one thing to have a list of criteria. It's an entirely different thing to weigh them according to the factors that you uh, really like. So limit it to a set number. I chose a hundred points. And then I started dishing out points based on what I thought was most important uh, all the way to, to least important. And I did the same thing with the uh, the negative. Uh, finally, I have this checklist that I can put companies through, and it, the checklist weighs the factors according to my criteria for is this a match for me. And what this allows me to do is run companies through uh, at any given time, and I can, uh, in, ma in a matter of like an hour or so, uh, figure out is this company a good match for my investing style, or is it something that I should uh, pass on? Uh, so as I said, you can you can download my checklist for free. Take it. I highly recommend take it, modify it, make add things mm -hmm. you like, subtract things uh, you don't, make it your own. But I think the process of going through that process is um is incredibly valuable. Mm. <clears throat> Brian, <clears throat> pardon me. That was that's fantastic. I've never th thought about it in that context of make it your own in sense in the sense of like what's important to me. We do that on the financial wellness and literacy side of things. We want people to feel good about their money, and we want to understand how lifestyle impacts that. But never investing. So um, I think that's a great base. And and like you said, your checklist there, which I'll link in the show notes and put that graphic in from before, um, will be great resources for people. However, there's one more resource we should talk about, which is your book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? I love it. It says it on the tin almost. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. So uh, when I started investing in 2004, I was reading voraciously every book that I could get my hands on. And I've read all the classic books about Buffett, uh, Lynch, uh, Carmen, Graham, uh, The Motley Fool's books. There, so many of them are excellent. They're really wonderful tools for uh, learning. Uh, however, I never found a book that really in answered the most important question that I had about investing, which was, why does the stock market go up? Like We've all seen the chart, the 100-year the chart of the S&P mm. 500, the Dow Jones, it's just bottom left to upper right. I'm like, I, I, I get that this has happened. I get that it's been a great investment. Why? 
<laughs> what is the thing that causes the, the stock market to go up uh, over time? And for so many books are just like, yes, the stock market is going to fall, but it will come back. It always uh, comes back. Um, so so I, that has always confused me as to why, why does the stock market fall? Why does it always uh, come back? And there was just never a book uh, that explained that very concept in an easy way. Um, so after talking with a couple of my friends uh, a few years ago, they were finally like, maybe you're the one that's supposed to write it. Um, so I was like, okay, I guess I have to write a book uh, now. So yeah, the book just just came out. Uh, I'm super proud of it. And I really, really did um, uh, focus on making it as easy to read as possible. Like they're all, all short chapters. It's at a fifth grade reading level. Anybody, uh, no matter where they are in their investing jersey, can understand the concepts that are in the book. Mm, fantastic. And to that point, you can pick it up and you can give it to anyone. You can give it to your kids. You can give it to your friends that want to get into, in, into the markets and want to learn about investing. So it's a fantastic book. I'll have all the links in the show notes. Brian, um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on your afternoon, my morning. Thank you so much for being here, Alan. I appreciate you waking up early to speak to me. <laughs> <Cheers>. <laughs>